Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, you're listening to a special podcast edition of Fourth Estate, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, directly to you on your favorite podcast app. My name's Nina Kopel. Gabriel Sherman is author of the New York Times best-selling biography of Fox News founder Roger Ailes. It's called The Loudest Voice in the Room. He's also a Vanity Fair special correspondent and previously was the national affairs editor at New York Magazine. He's heading over to Australia soon for Sydney Writers' Festival, where he'll be talking about a few different issues. But when we caught up over Skype, I started by asking him what came first, his interest in politics or his interest in the media? Well, my my entree into writing about politics was through media. Um, I was early in my career assigned to cover uh, the newspaper and publishing industry in New York City. And this was in the uh, early 2000s when there was a tremendous amount of debate uh, over uh, the Iraq war and uh, in, in many instances, uh, the journalistic failures that led to uh, many of the uh, false claims of weapons of mass destruction being reported in the media and uh, covering that story uh, and the way the uh, Bush administration was able to manipulate the media really kindled my um, interest in political reporting. And so um, later in my career, when I had the opportunity, I uh, transitioned to uh, adding uh, politics to uh, the subjects in which I write about. But was it the systems or was it the personalities that drew you in? Because with your book, The Loudest Voice in the Room, it was Ailes that really you focused on as opposed to Fox News as an institution. Yeah, that's a great um, that's a great question. I guess I would say it's a mixture of the two. Uh, but without doubt, without uh, uh, without a doubt, uh, the personalities are things that draw me uh, to these subjects, uh, especially, um, you know, the the classic character type of the media mogul going back uh, through history to people like William Randolph Hearst. Um, there's a storied history in the United States of these larger than life figures having outsized influence through uh, the media and. Um, I've been lucky in my career to write about um, several of them. And so, yes, I'm fascinated by the way institutions work and the way power uh, works within institutions. But I'm also drawn to uh, the figures uh, at the top of them uh, and to understand how these immensely powerful and complicated people got to where they are. And it's definitely something that exists in Australia as well. We're not immune to the the powers of the people at the top oh, of these media the, organizations. Oh, you have the Murdoch family, the Murdoch family, and the Packer family. So there is 
in many ways similarities between our cultures. Um, but what we don't have maybe as much at the moment is our personality politics. We don't have a Trump equivalent. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was uh, we didn't have that either until uh, the last uh, three years or so when Donald Trump really took uh, uh, a serious run at running for president. Um, yeah, this is a, a new phenomenon that I think everyone uh, around the world is living through. Uh, uh, a president who decides to kind of cut out all the filters of the traditional policymaking process and have decisions that are kind of made through the bureaucracy get released in a kind of organized fashion. And instead, this is a person, uh, a president who governs by impulse and whim um, and uh, decides to uh, basically uh, have a, a real time um sort of govern in real time through his Twitter feed. And as a reporter, it's, you know, incredibly exhilarating to be covering a story that changes minute to minute. Um, but, you know, also as a citizen, I think it's uh, a little unsettling that so many of the norms and, and traditions that have governed American politics pretty much in the post-war period are just being completely shattered to pieces by uh, Donald Trump's force of nature. But it's a good time for you personally to be a journalist. I mean, the, the type of personalities you like to cover is, you know, the Aleses of the world. And now you have a Trump. It's, it seems like good fortune for you. Yeah, no, I can't. I can't uh, deny that this is a, you know, an exhilarating time to be a reporter. The news, there's a, 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 almost too much of it, I would say. I mean, my, my journalist friends and I talk about kind of the exhaustion and the burnout of trying to cover uh, a, a massive story uh, that, again, seems to be changing minute to minute. Um, but I guess I'm just it's a wave that I'm trying to just, you know, stay stay afloat and keep riding it. One of the interesting things for me about your experience is the fact that you were kind of watching Fox News very carefully at a time when maybe your colleagues at New York Magazine wouldn't have been looking at Fox closely. So what did you learn from that experience? Well, you know, what I learned is that it is, um, you know, it was it's not like uh, a traditional news network. It really is actually, and I've, I've said this many times, it, it really operates more like a political campaign in which they, they have a daily message that gets set uh, from the top. And I'm, I'm mainly speaking for the Roger Ailes era, which ended in 2016, although the network has in some ways stayed the same. But in the in the period uh, in which Roger Ailes ran the network from its founding in 1996 to his um, firing in the summer of 2016, you know, it really was set up like a political campaign. He would uh, come up with the daily message in the morning meeting with his top lieutenants and that message would get sent down to the more junior personnel and then eventually would get programmed into the teleprompters and the um, on-air commentators would have uh, have the message. And, you know, this was not a case where like CNN or a normal news network would, you know, send its reporters out into the field and they would find out uh, the news and bring it back to uh, the headquarters. This was very much a message, a political messaging machine um that uh was set up to reflect roger ailes's kind of paranoid right-wing vision and that is um that is just you know you can see that from the outside just as a viewer by watching fox but what i was fascinated 
I was to sort of peel back the curtain and to see inside the secretive meetings and how Ailes actually scripted the news. And what did that do for the Trump campaign? Well, I mean, you know, without Fox News, I think it's a real question mark as to whether we would have Donald Trump as president. The network was instrumental in creating the the uh, serious idea that Donald Trump could be a politician. Back in 2011, Roger Ailes gave Donald Trump a weekly call-in segment on the morning program Fox and Friends, which is the highest rated um, program in cable news in the morning. And it is, speaks to a very conservative, passionate right-wing audience. And this was an opportunity for Donald Trump to test out many of the messages that would become hallmarks of his 2016 presidential campaign. He started speaking about immigration, uh, uh, a really hard line anti-immigrant um, uh, point of view. He also uh, fanned the birther conspiracy, which we all remember as him questioning the citizenship of then President Barack Obama. And what he found in these segments, it was almost like a real-time focus group. He got a tremendous audience feedback. The Fox News Twitter feeds would light up. The Facebook feeds would light up with comments. And this was kind of a testing ground for Donald Trump to become a right-wing conservative politician. Because prior to this, he really was just known around New York City as mainly kind of a Democrat, um, a kind of a man of no real fixed political positions. And through Fox News, he reinvented himself. But what an interesting moment to be reevaluating that Trump campaign and the power that mainstream media had, as we're seeing um, the Cambridge Analytica fallout and these discussions happening about how much power that type of data mining and consequent advertising had. Do you think that we need to be reevaluating how powerful the mainstream media is in that context or who really won him that campaign? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And in fact, I ended my book um, kind of uh, on that uh, very same idea that, um, you know, television is very much a medium of the 20th century. Um, Roger Ailes's life being born in 1940 and uh, and dying just months after being fired from Fox News, his life really traced the arc of the rise of the TV uh, industry. But we are now clearly firmly rooted in the Internet age. And I I write at the end of my book about the rise of right wing media outlets like Breitbart News and others that really, uh, in some ways, in some corners of uh, American politics, supplanted Fox News as really driving the conversation. And as you just pointed out, you know, the entire rise of social media platforms and data mining and uh, sort of targeted uh, advertising campaigns that are able to persuade very specific pockets of voters. Those are all, you know, completely new phenomena. And uh, I think it's way too early to tell ultimately what propelled Donald Trump into the Oval Office and whether it was his, these, you know, large stadium rallies that he did, whether it was the Fox News relationship or ultimately, you know, some online messaging campaign that may or may not have been augmented by, you know, Russian backed political bots that we are now learning about through the Robert Mueller investigation. Um, So I think it's too early to tell. This will clearly be 
very fertile material for historians and social scientists to be studying for decades to come. Absolutely. To, to look at another social movement that's been taking place in recent times, something that has affected um, Ailes and you touched on in your book and has come up more recently in terms of the Me Too movement. You reported on some of the sexual harassment allegations against Ailes well before this movement emerged and ended up kind of losing him position at the at the head of Fox. Do you think that the campaign was actually a bit slow to catch on to what was happening? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because when I started doing a lot of this reporting, there really there was no Me Too movement. There was no paradigm of a powerful man being brought down by uh, allegations of sexual misconduct. And in fact, in my book, which was published, first published in January of 2014, I had several examples of on-the-record interviews with women who had worked for Roger Ailes who talked about being pressured into sex in exchange for career advancement. And, you know, I thought that and I knew from my other reporting on the subject that there were more women out there, that obviously this was not an isolated case. And I wondered if more women would come forward after my book was published. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, surprised and a little disappointed that, in fact, that that didn't initially happen. You know, I was contacted by a few women, um, but they were so terrified of Roger Ailes's power and his use of private investigators to attack his enemies and all of that, that they really just remain silent. And of course, it's a, a very personal decision. Every every victim, it's their own choice to come forward. So I was, you know, really feeling like Ailes was able to keep a lid on on the true breath of his sexual uh, harassment and abuse. But then fast forward into the summer of 2016, Gretchen Carlson files a landmark sexual harassment lawsuit against Roger Ailes personally. And it was that lawsuit and I think some changes in the culture that allowed more women to come forward and start telling me on the record accounts of uh, Ailes' abuse. And from there, it was really like, um, you know, pulling on the string that just unraveled this gargantuan story, uh, a really sickening story of Uh, a man who was able to silence women over decades uh, of uh, abusing dozens of of his female employees. And then in some cases, you know, know, coercing them to sign very strict non-disclosure agreements. Um, So I, you know, looking back on it, it really, I really do think that the Roger Ailes downfall helped establish the paradigm of the whole Me Too movement. Um, because after Ailes's uh, downfall, we had the um, the firing of Bill O'Reilly, the prominent on-air um, personality at Fox, and then uh, pretty much from there, you went straight into Harvey Weinstein, uh, it, which was broken by the New York Times and the New Yorker magazine, and from there, you just had scores of powerful men uh, laid low by. Um, sexual uh, harassment allegations. So, you know, Roger Ailes clearly was at the forefront of um, of this movement. But I do think there were many other things that were happening in the culture here in the United States that allowed these women to suddenly feel uh, and finally feel brave enough to tell their stories. You know, in 2015, uh, Bill Cosby was exposed as being a, a sexual uh, predator and a serial predator. And those allegations were finally taken seriously. Um, And then you had the election of Donald Trump. And, you know, 
I, I believe uh, more than a dozen women uh, came forward with very credible allegations against Trump during the campaign. And the fact that that was not enough to derail him and um, stop it stopped the first uh, woman candidate from being uh, pres- elected president of the United States, I think galvanized a tremendous amount of of um, frustration amongst women in America that they wanted to be able to do something. And I think women finally said enough and they were emboldened to to come forward and talk about other powerful men that had um, seemingly gotten away with with uh, with the abuse. So I think it's just sort of a whole combination of factors that all seem to come together in the span of a, of a few years that has really changed, hopefully changed the world for the better. You mentioned there that Trump d- did get um, accused of a bunch of sexual harassment allegations. We didn't see the fallout that we saw with Ailes. We didn't see the reaction that some of these media high profile people um, had in response to the same allegations against them. Do you think there's a double standard between the the people that we see at the top of politics and the people that we see at the top of media? Um no, I wouldn't say there's a double standard. I'd say there's a different standard at a media company. It's a private. These are private corporations. They're free to to hire and fire who they who they will. Um, but in a democracy, it's the voters who decide. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, the American people uh, decided not, uh, not a majority. I should point out Hillary Clinton won three million more votes than Donald Trump. But enough voters in the um, electoral college system, uh, the very bizarre system we have of electing presidents here in America uh, to uh, elect Donald Trump. So I, I, I don't think it's a double standard. I just think it's a different standard. And um, and it's up to to voters uh, to decide. But, you know, one sort of final point on this I'll make is they it's a very common phrase um, that people say that politics is downstream from from culture. So our politics only reflects is sort of a mirror uh, back on what the culture is. So now that the the Me Too movement has really solidified itself and the culture hopefully has changed, I would expect to see that play out in our politics and the politics is starting to change. And we did see that to some degree of some other, obviously no one as powerful as the president, but other politicians over the past year have had to resign in the wake of uh, harassment uh, uh, allegations. So, again, I just think going forward, I, it will be fascinating to see in the 2020 election, if Donald Trump is still in power by then, to, uh, to see to what extent the Me Too movement has a, a political effect. That was New York Times bestselling author Gabriel Sherman speaking to me about his work looking at the media and at politics. If you want to hear more from him, he'll be speaking at the Sydney Writers Festival coming up. Hope you enjoyed this week's podcast special. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And stay tuned for our panel show this week. It's going to be a good one. My name's Nina Copel. See you next time. Hi.